This is the Education Gadfly Show. Cicadas are out and they're disgusting. I'm seeing all kinds of recipes for people putting them on salad. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Doug Tuthill. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike, and I love your radio voice. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike, what's a radio? Oh, don't pretend like you're Gen Z, David. Well, if listeners are hearing sirens behind me, that's because, that's right, I am actually doing this from the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, Washington, D.C. office for the first time in like 14 months. It's so exciting. Crazy. Pedro, our producer, is here in the office. And David, can you come down to the office sometimes, too? This is I'll think about it. Well, for those of you that don't know, Doug is president of Step Up for Students. I'll let Doug define Step Up for Students, but it is very much in the middle of the school choice movement in Florida. Governor DeSantis just signed a new bill to make Florida's school choice programs even bigger. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about Step Up for Students. Well, Mike, we're a nonprofit organization, and we're contracted with the state of Florida to run five separate choice programs. And so across the five programs, we've got about 160,000 children that we serve. And the new legislation is going to have us pick up a sixth program, which has about 30,000 kids on it. We'll have about 170,000 kids on scholarship, and next year we'll be well over 200,000. Yeah, Which a bunch of them, you manage the logistics of making this happen, right? Getting uh, the money to flow and, and handling all of that. Doug, let's talk more about this new school choice program in Ed Reform Update. So, Doug, Florida has been a leader in school choice for a long time. We were talking about before the show about, you know, not just private school choice, but charter schools, inter-district choice, magnet schools, virtual school, you name it. Florida has been crushing it. And so tell us what is important about this latest program. How is it going to be different? And, and why is it something that the rest of us should be paying attention to? Well, Mike, if you look at the evolution of programs around the country, we all sort of go through the same pattern, which is originally there's a lot of diversity in the programs, special needs programs, low-income kids. We tend to start small, a lot of very diverse programs. And same thing happened in Florida. I just mentioned we now have six different programs. I think the legislature said, okay, it's time to grow up, begin to integrate these programs, make them more simple, more elegant, more easy for families to access. And that's really the big message in this bill. It's significantly improved access. There's over a million students were added to the eligibility through this program to the new legislation that dramatically expands the number of children who have access, combined programs to make it easier for families to apply. I wrote a blog post the other day called it the normalization of choice. A lot of what's happened is these programs are sort of little islands. We now integrated them into the funding system of the state of the normal public education funding mechanism. And so what you're really seeing is a simplification over time, making more user-friendly and sort of the normalization. It's now basically a normal part of, of public education. And as I mentioned, over half the kids in the state are on some kind of choice program. And so it's now normal in Florida. So a million kids newly eligible. Florida is a big state, but that's still, that is a very big number. So are those kids eligible now based on income? Basically, you don't have to be as poor as you used to have to be to get a voucher in Florida? Yeah, they, uh, they increase the income level from about 77000 for a family of four to just under 100000 So that, that picked up a number of kids. We also eliminate a public school attendance requirement for a lot of the kids. And so eliminating that public school attendance requirement 
actually opened up about a million more kids were now, were now eligible. Between that and the income level increases, yeah, it's a pretty dramatic expansion of access. Obviously, a million kids aren't going to apply for the fall, but it does open things up pretty dramatically. Now, and is there a limit on the number of those kids that could actually participate? The only limit is the number of seats available in schools to serve them. The low-income program is not, a, is not an educational savings account. It's not an ESA, which means that the kids would have to be in a, either a district school or a private school. They do have transportation scholarships to go to a district school, or you can use a scholarship for tuition fees for a private school. So really, the only limitation would be the number of seats that are available to them. And as you might imagine, on the supply side, the number of, of seats are expanding pretty dramatically in the private sector right now in Florida. So, Doug, let's take up some of the primary arguments against expansion. So first one is, do we really need families making six figures or maybe just below six figures to be getting private school choice? Wasn't the idea that this was originally going to be for the neediest kids, either because they're low income or maybe because they're special needs and not getting well served in the traditional public schools, or maybe because their traditional public school they're assigned to was, was terrible. Now you're talking about middle class even depending on the cost of living, upper middle class families getting access to private school. Is, is that something that we should be using taxpayer money for? Well, our philosophy has always been that every family deserves a right to match their child with the education environment that best meets their needs. And if you're a cop and you're married to a teacher and together you're making you know, $120,000 a year and you've got three kids and you want to, you want to put them in a Catholic school, it's really unaffordable. And so uh, we just wanted to make sure that there's no families that are being left out we always prioritize the highest poverty kids because they oftentimes have the greatest needs. But our philosophy has never been that only some kids deserve access to the, the schools that best meet their needs. We think everybody should, whether it's a charter school or a magnet school or a zone neighborhood school, we're agnostic to the choices. We've never been a pro-private school choice organization. Uh, we've always been a pro-education choice organization and we're agnostic as to the choices families make. But when we find families who are being priced out or being blocked out for other kinds of reasons, we try to reduce those barriers to, to maximize access for every family and every child. Okay. However, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I do worry you've got limited supply and the schools still get to decide who comes in their door, right? It's not a lottery at the school level. They can use their own admissions requirements. Are you worried? What if they start saying, well, maybe we'd rather have the middle class and upper middle class kids rather than the low income kids? Because maybe we are not as confident about our ability to serve low income kids. Uh, I mean, do you worry about that happening now with this expansion? Well, I'm an evidence kind of guy trained as a social scientist. So I, I tend to follow the, the data. And what we've seen, at least for the last 14 years that I've, I've been president, a step up is that supply continues to chase demand. Mm-hmm. And the schools are very committed to serving children. We haven't found any cherry picking at all. There are s- situations where kids with some deep in special needs, mm-hmm. spina bifida, Down syndrome, things like that. Sometimes the schools feel like they're not really comfortable with some of those special needs. But frankly, this is also true in district schools. You know, oftentimes district schools will say, you know, that's why we have uh, special ed centers in, in a lot of our uh, school districts. So we haven't seen any evidence, Mike, of schools really cherry picking and, and saying you can't, you can't come in. A lot of our schools, about 80% are faith-based, and as part of their core values is serving the community. And they're particularly enthusiastic about serving the underserved and children, low-income children, minority children. That's their passion, to be honest with you. And so it's this beautiful thing where people who are coming into the education market 
have a core value of serving the underserved and, and they're very passionate about it. And so we haven't seen any examples of, of people saying, I'm sorry, you can't come in because you're low income or you're whatever. And that's not something we've seen. David, you might be better job at playing devil's advocate than I am. I want to hear more about the politics. I can guess at them. I always feel like I can guess at them, but I guess I'm just curious. You make it sound like it's pretty smooth sailing. I can't believe it's actually that simple, right? You know, is there pushback or are there bumps in the road up ahead that you see? Kind of where do you see things going from here? Or do you think it's just going to create its own momentum? Well, all of the above, David. I mean, there is a lot of momentum. And like I said before, Florida has sort of reached a tipping point where instead of pushing the rock up the hill, it's starting to go down the hill. And that has a lot of its own value when you get that kind of momentum going. There are uh, challenges. There, are, there is political pushback. A lot of it is sort of class-driven. You know, it's interesting. The middle class and upper middle class in school districts are sometimes concerned that this is a loss for them, that if children start choosing schools besides their neighborhood school, that it's somehow going to create a, a loss for, for the middle class and the upper middle class. And I think that's sort of a challenge. We've got to convince people that there's a win-win solution here, that giving power to people that historically haven't had power isn't a net loss. And in fact, at the end of the day, we all benefit and all the families have the same kind of power that more affluent families have. So I find myself, ironically enough, in, in meetings with basically white liberals who are, who are more affluent, who are the ones that have the most concerns. And I think it comes from a really legitimate place. I think they really feel like they worry about the families being able to make good decisions. And they really feel like that having some kind of authority make decisions for the families is in the kids' best interest. Having worked with these families for a decade and a half now, they're really committed to their children. They fight for their kids. They know that oftentimes education is the key to breaking generational poverty. And so I'm inspired by the families and what they're doing for their children. But, but there is this interesting dialogue with basically white liberal middle class organizations, League of Women Voters, teacher unions, et cetera, who have concerns. I'm hoping over time that they'll see that this is a win-win and it's not a win-loss. I think you're starting to see that. I have all kinds of private conversations with my friends who are elected Democrats who privately say, look, I support the program. The party right now opposes it for economic and political reasons, but we all know it's here to stay. But at the end of the day, I think, think everybody knows that we're heading in the right direction. That doesn't mean there aren't challenges. I do think it's important that we give families the information they need to make good decisions. I've been in the choice movement actually over 40 years. I was started in one of the first magnet schools in Florida, and I saw teachers and doctors and lawyers making horrendous decisions on behalf of their kids, not because they didn't like their kids, but it's hard to make these decisions about what's in the best interest of a child. And so I do think that we have to do a better job of giving parents really good information to help them navigate the choices. Um, you see it in other disciplines. When your doctor says, do you need this test? Do you really need that test? How do you know? Human development is a very complex endeavor. But helping families navigate all the choices they have to make. And we haven't talked yet about educational savings accounts, but that really opens up the universe of choices. And as we move toward ESAs, which is the future in Florida and every other choice program in the country, helping families access the information they need to make better choices is going to be a critical challenge for us moving forward. And Doug, there's always been, for a long time, a bipartisan piece to this reform in Florida, which has made it different than a lot of the other states. You've had Democrats, I think mostly Black and Hispanic Democratic yeah. lawmakers willing to vote for these programs. Is that still then the case? Yeah. In the House, we had like 
five or six Dems. We even had a Dem in, in the Senate vote for the program. They tended to be racial and ethnic minorities. But I got to say, even the white Dems, by and large, know that this is good. But, you know, again, there's, there's political considerations or economic considerations that they have to calculate. But by and large, it is really gratifying. And I think that bipartisanship is going to grow over time. I used to tell people, most of the families in the early days when we were primarily just a low income, most of those families were Democratic families. Low income families of color tend to vote Democrat. And so we were in this strange situation where Republicans were doing all the heavy lifting and the primary benefits were primary Democratic constituents. But we're sort of evolving past that, Mike, and I'm seeing a lot of support, particularly privately from a bipartisan perspective. But I am proud of the, the Democrats who stand up and say, look, I'm going to do what's right. Well, let's leave it there. Doug Tuthill, again, the head of Step Up for Students in Florida. So exciting. Yet another reason to be jealous of Florida. Not just an open economy. Not just <laughs> Everybody's open saying schools. it, Mike. Come on. Not just another congressional seat with the latest census, but also a growing school choice sector. Really good stuff. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back sometime soon. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, David. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. I just heard from my 13-year-old son, Nico, that, uh, you know, the cicadas are out and they're disgusting. It is just getting started. I have not seen the first one yet here oh. in in Richmond, but I am on the lookout. I'm seeing all kinds of recipes for people putting them on salads, right? As the new crunch. Yeah. Protein. Yeah. The first time I saw it the other day was because my dog Thunder was trying to munch on one. It looks like something out of a horror movie, right? Yeah, like they do. And I just think it's fascinating. You got to love evolution and nature. Like this evolutionary strategy is to have so many come out at the same time that predators you literally cannot eat them all because they get stuffed. Yeah, it's sort of like think tanks, Mike. Wait, what? I don't know. Only the strong survive or something. Say, what? we all are sending so much stuff out at people, policymakers and practitioners on any given day that, yes, uh, good. Get some more sleep, David. Okay, what, what you got for us this week, Amber? I stumbled on these meta-analyses that are published in the Review of Educational Research which I don't normally cover, but I'm thinking, you know, these are quite useful in a field that doesn't often aggregate research. So this one is on what we know about how to engage users in online learning, especially since many individuals begin online courses and don't complete them. I thought at first it was about K-12 students and online learning, but it's actually about engaging adults in online workplace learning. So they have to be involved in an online professional learning course as part of their profession. But then when I kind of dug in, I thought, eh, I think it's got some applicability to K-12 education. And especially as many of the studies involve teachers who are taking online PD. So scholars are examining, again, engagement in online learning, not the degree to which it actually increases one's knowledge, skills, and abilities, which is obviously the goal here. But prior research has shown that engagement is an enabler and a predictor of learning. So researchers were just interested in trying to decompose what engagement looks like and how it works. They examined three types of engagement, emotional, which refers to a learner's feelings about their online experiences, such as are they satisfactory? Or are they frustrated with it? 
Then they look at cognitive engagement, which refers to the learner's intention to immerse themselves in the online experience and concentrate on the material. And number three, behavioral engagement, which refers to the actions that they take, like the amount of time spent online, the number of logins, course completion, and so on and so forth. They undertake a lengthy process to identify studies around the globe that meet their criteria. It is a long process. I don't have time to get into it. It was a long study, but they end up with 51 studies going back to 1990, which struck me as maybe a little too far back, given the differences (laughs) in technology. 1990? 1990, yep. Uh, They have 9,500 participants in mostly high-income countries. They decide after looking at what they've got to conduct both a meta-analysis with the quantitative studies where they have the effect sizes or they can uh, calculate the effect sizes. That's about 23 of those 51 studies. And then they do what's called a narrative synthesis of the rest of the mixed methods studies and the case study studies that also met their criteria. So, you know, they kind of got two things going on here. Basically, they find that most of the studies that they gathered did not meet their criteria for high quality and that very few are experimental and they fall into the moderate quality category. But basically they say, you know, we got to start somewhere and we hope that the field starts to do better, higher quality studies relative to engagement. If seven findings, I mean, honestly, there were way more than seven, but so this is going to be kind of a grab bag. Number one, across the studies, one's perceived sense of self-efficacy or confidence with technology was the most studied angle and individual demographic influences like age, education, and ethnicity was least studied. There was no relationship between a learner's perception of their confidence or self-efficacy with technology and their completing the work. Number two, across all studies, they found that a well-structured online course and higher learner satisfaction with the content design were correlated with a learner's intention to keep taking online courses and basically achieve the learning objectives. Moreover, they often found that the often flexible, unsupervised nature of online professional learning in the workplace meant that engagement in the course favored highly self-disciplined learners. If internal influences such as learner interest and motivation were high, learners would overcome the barriers and set aside time for online learning. Number three, aspects of the course design, like the duration of the course or the use of different types of media in the course, did not influence learner satisfaction. Number four, the education level had a negative association with emotional engagement in that more educated learners felt online courses were less useful to them, perhaps because they knew the material already. Number five, learner's age was negatively correlated with cognitive engagement, meaning that older learners reported lower intentions to use online learning for their development, both because they had heavier workloads and saw less benefit to their jobs. Number six, there were contradictory findings in terms of offering rewards for completing online courses. Some studies showed that these rewards increased persistence and others saw no impact on persistence. However, interacting with peers and the course facilitator facilitated persistence and completion. Moreover, learners were more likely to finish when their organizations gave them time to complete the learning during the workday. 
And number seven, they looked at the industry and found that it explained a decent proportion of the variance in cognitive engagement with educators showing the strongest effects. In short, teachers who are interested in online learning engage more deeply with it, and they found it more useful than did their peers in the health, banking, business, and corporate fields. I love it. Teachers, there's lifelong learners. I think there is something to that, right? I think there is. No, it's interesting, Amber. I guess I have this bias. I haven't done a ton of this. We don't require or expect a whole lot of this at Fordham, unless you count watching webinars and panels and things like that, but at the U.S. Department of Education. And it was always compliance stuff, you know, it was like the ethics training or, you know, but various things that were required. It was just like the most tedious, boring. It is. Engagement's key. And I don't know, I'd be curious, like it just if it was a topic that you actually got to choose to study, right, versus something where you were just being told to do it, mainly as a check. Right. Well, I mean, at Fordham, right, we have our employees come up with their own PD goals. What do you want to learn? What do you want to do more of? It's not like the supervisor says you need to do this. So there's the hope that you're identifying your own sort of gaps in your knowledge and skills that maybe you'll be more motivated and engaged with reaching those goals. Can you say the bit about the different types of engagement again? It was emotional and... Cognitive and behavioral. Okay. That's interesting. It makes me wonder. I mean, my first question whenever someone says engagement is, what on earth do you mean? It's intuitive that it matters, right? But it's also a little fuzzy. It's the kind of thing that makes a researcher mutter the words construct validity. I mean, those are three very different things. Right. Yep. And I suppose you can be emotionally engaged virtually, Actually, I'm surprised. I'm surprised by what I get out of Zoom. And I had the chance to take an online course pretty recently. And, you know, it was interesting. It was almost like being in a regular classroom in terms of developing relationships with the students. And except it was a lot easier to pass notes. It is interesting going back to 1990. I mean, 1990. (laughs) Look, I was in college in the early 90s. I do remember some early experiments with some of this stuff that I was a part of. They were trying hard, but oh my God, so much different. But in the last year, as you say, Zoom and the like, and I'd love to know more about engagement in traditional classes, right? I mean, that is the big question is, of course, that's why we see teachers, I think, doing less talking at, you know, less the sage on the stage and more the guide on the side is partly for that engagement, right? Getting kids to do small group and pairs, turn and talk and all these other kinds of things to try to keep the kids quote, engaged, not tuned out. I feel like with disengagement, we know it when we see it. But yeah, what is engagement? And is it just meaning, yeah, they're like, the kids are engaged, they're participating, they're talking, they're chatting. Right. They're actually learning anything. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, how do you keep them to, you know, keep paying attention? I think about the little Doug Lamov strategies, tricks for teachers to do like thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, you're listening and clap three times when you hear me. I mean, some of these things are just making sure they're alert and following along. So I agree that engagement is lots of nuance to what we mean by that. The great advantage of online learning, I mean, if it has one, is that the great challenge of in-person learning, at least in my opinion, is that you're trying to keep teenagers engaged for nine straight hours or whatever. And nobody really stays engaged in anything for that long, right? I mean, I guess I'd just be interested to know more about online COVID fiasco. It'd be like, is there any way we can help kids 
opt into things that will engage them a little bit better, right? Like, because that's something that to me, technology could actually help with. Instead of a teacher just sort of yakking at you, right? And insisting that you be engaged, is there a way that we can use technology to help kids sort of pick something that is productive that they actually want to do right now? Similar to having them choose their own book in elementary school about something they're interested in. Yeah, but optimizing it, you know, like really taking it to the next level. Especially as they get older, that has a lot of promise. All right, well, hey, in order to keep our own audience engaged, we should probably leave it there. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.